Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. I'm going to begin with a scheduling announcement. I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break from posting the episodes of the podcast. Don't be alarmed. I fully intend to continue. Um, after about a month or a month and a half, um, I've actually already recorded uh, some podcasts. So in all fairness to the guests, they, they, they need to be posted. But I enjoy doing this too much. So um, I, I fully intend to continue. Um, but each of the podcasts is actually months in preparation and production. So between the time uh, when I read someone's work or have an idea uh, to drawing up questions and scheduling the re- recording and then editing and so forth, it, they take a long time. And um, so there's usually quite a few episodes that are in the pipeline at any time. And there are right now. So I'm actually working to... Um, record a number of episodes uh, once I return to the U.S. in the fall. Um, and I have one and will have a few more recorded in the next few weeks. So I'm not slacking off completely, just a little bit. I uh, need a little bit of a break. It's been two years, uh, amazingly. And um, you know, I had originally intended for these to be a 10-episode series, and then I'd take a break after 10 episodes, then you know, later come back with another 10 uh, but <laughs> we've rushed forward to like 55 or whatever this is. Uh, anyway, without without a break for two years. So um, anyway, just a little bit of a pause. I'm not sure how I will let anybody know that I resumed posting um, in probably mid to late September. Um, I, I don't do social media, so I don't do announcements like that. But I guess you all check somewhere wherever you get podcasts so uh, check back uh, around that time i can honestly say that i've got a great lineup of people and topics to bring before you then on to today's episode then Uh, so regular listeners of the podcast should need little uh, introduction for this episode it's uh, basically a kind of part two of what we did in episode 50 uh, which was a couple of guests and i debate the question of whom we would interview from Byzantium if we had the opportunity to do so, what questions would be asked, what what we would be looking for. I actually got a a lot of very positive feedback from that episode. Uh, Many of you seem to appreciate how sort of giddy we got like grad students, (laughs) you know, with with lots of goodies that we could play with uh, that don't actually exist, but we use our imagination for them. And I had a lot of fun recording 50, and, and I had a lot of fun recording this one too. Uh, so my guests for this uh, take uh, on that question uh, are Paroma Chatterjee from the University of Michigan and Merle Eisenberg from the National Social Environmental Synthesis Center at the University of Maryland. And both have been guests on the podcast before. Um, I, I just thought that they would uh, present a, a, a very interesting combination of perspectives, um, which indeed they did. Um, so it's pretty self-explanatory, um, except for one thing. Um, so Paroma mentions a, 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 an author, Paul the Salentieri, whom every Byzantinist will know. Uh, but I just thought some of you might not know him, so just a quick word in advance about who that is. Paul the Salentieri was a court official. Uh, Salentieri's were uh, pretty, you know, mid- to high-level ranking court officials who were 
in charge of you know, palace events and decorum and, and order. And he was also a poet in the 6th century, and he wrote most famously an ecrisis of Hagia Sophia, so Justinian's, after Justinian had built it, Hagia Sophia in the 6th century. Um, is a long poetic description of um, the church and one of our main sources for it, uh, or, you know, for how it was adorned and perceived in the 6th century. If you want to hear more about Paul's work, I refer you to episode 11, where I spoke with Stephen Smith about Byzantine erotic epigrams, because Paul wrote some of those, and they're quite fun to read. But Paroma is referring mostly to his work on the description of Hagia Sophia. Anyway, this is a slightly longer episode uh, than usual because we've got three perspectives to present. Uh, So I'll leave it here and wish you all uh, the best for the remainder of the summer. Stay safe, um, and I'll uh, see you all again in the fall. Paroma, Merle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having me back on, Anthony. Yeah, I should say welcome back. I mean, you've both been on before. Um, and I asked you to uh, join me in this conversation because I thought you would bring very interesting, diverse perspectives, uh, like very different ideas about, you know, who you would like to talk to from Byzantium if you got the chance. You could interview them for, you know, as long as well, a week, two weeks, something like that, debrief them or interrogate them as we had, uh, as Alexander did last time uh, in the first episode of this kind. Um, so... The uh, audience knows the setup, so let's just take it. Uh, uh, Merle, why don't you start us off? Uh, g- give us your pitch, then we'll discuss it and, and move on to Proma and myself. Sure. So I really liked your previous episode. I listened to it as I was driving somewhere uh, over the course of the week. And Alexander, because as you said, uh, not only did you pick a great person, but it was one of the most intensely and amazingly structured, thought out series of questions that I think I've ever heard. Um, and Fotini, because I think she really offered great insight into the nitty gritty uh, of the daily life of a person. And, and you, I, I would say, went for, I guess, maximum effect. Yeah. Um, so you picked a person, right? It was enslaved by Romans and then became a companion of the prophet. So uh, I have a person in mind and I'll get to them in a, in a minute or so. But what I realized is there was no way I could top the either structured approach the daily life approach or the maximum effect approach. But what I realized listening to your interview uh, is that all of you framed your approach in a very medieval, late antique, Byzantine, whatever term you want to use, that you all chose a series of one-off interviews, as it were, right? That you would sit down with someone. So for example, Alexander's approach actually would generate, if he wrote it all up, something like Procopius's Wars, right? You would have a long story written down, interspersed over different time periods, but then, you know, compiled, edited, et cetera, et cetera. We can have debates about that if you so desire later in his life. So what you get is is stories, right? And you get a later perspective. Uh, And I couldn't help, uh, as I was listening, I was thinking of uh, the first Robert Caro biography of LBJ, The Path to Power. I don't know if either one of you have read that. No. Um, so this describes his early life. And, and what Robert Caro d- figures out is that LBJ had been telling stories about his life for most of his adult life. And that when he went back and actually interviewed the people, all the stories were essentially made up. <laughs> um, and he found out a lot about his early life. Um, so very much a narrative creation of his own life that he fostered explicitly and uh, on purpose. 
So to that end, what I thought was missing from the work and the time period we all work on are kind of long-term changes, right? Tracking someone over the course of his life or her life or their life, um, which we don't have in terms of archival material outside of Egypt or you know a few other places that we're probably all familiar with. And here I was well thinking of my friend who works on 20th century American history. And what he has is he looks at the history of work and freedom over about a hundred years. And he has cohort studies and longitudinal studies, right? Where he tracks people across time and space. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those uh, kind of anthropological approaches. Um, so in an ideal world, what I thought is that I would interview a huge number of people every five or 10 years, and then their kids and then their grandkids and ask them questions about changes over time, right? What do they think about the state? What do they think about their identity? Uh, how has the world changed since you know their parents and grandparents, stuff like that. Now I should say, I thought that was cheating a bit too much. No. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Um, so then what I thought is I would do is I would cheat a little bit. And since you never explicitly told me I couldn't interview someone multiple times over the course of their life, I thought I would choose one person, a high ranking person who can then give me insight into his life if I interviewed him every five years or so, right? And so that's how I thought about the way to do this. And the person I ultimately landed on um, because you know at heart I'm a fifth, sixth century person is uh, the Emperor Zeno. Uh, who rules from 474 to 491. Um, you know, there's some back and forth there, but that's essentially his life. And I'd ask a series of questions, and I'll get into details in a second, uh, in terms of, you know, as I just outlined, what did he think about his place in the world? How did this change over time? How did this compare, you know, in terms of who he's in contact with? I'd probably actually just ask Alexander for his list of questions. And if, if the emperor is willing to give me six days uh, multiple times over his life, that's what I would use because I, I can't improve upon that. I really, really can't. Sure. Now, uh, Zeno, I think, is particularly good for this because he, you know, has a somewhat of a rags to riches story, right? I mean, we can debate over how much it really is, but, you know, he starts out in the provinces, he becomes a key military general, he marries the daughter of the emperor, and then he himself becomes emperor. So you get a really good feel, I think, um, about daily life in a province, and then how he makes his way up the food chain. Now, I think we could break Zeno's life into three broad phases. So if I was only allowed to interview him three times, I would choose each of these three periods. Right. So first, as with most people, we know little about his early life. Right. We do know he was likely born with a different name. Right. Teresis or Teres Condissa in Asoria, which is now in um, uh, a province of the Roman Empire in what's south central Turkey. Right. It's a very mountainous region. Um, you know, it's often seen as a very barbaric region. Um, this is obviously what people from the center would think about, say, a province. Right. It's under Roman rule for centuries. So there's no way in which it's not essentially thoroughly Romanized, but he's a provincial Roman soldier, right? So to get his view of what his life is like there, what he thinks of people in the capital, and what he ultimately thought about why he was leaving. So that would be kind of the first set of interviews. And again, you could structure it, just borrow, borrow Alexander's questions if you so desired. The second is when he comes to the capital, he changes his name to Zeno. So that's an interesting discussion you could obviously have, right? What does that mean about his identity and how he thinks about the world? Um, and he rises to significant office by the mid-460s. He marries the daughter of the Emperor Leo I, Ariadne, 
So how does that go down? Right. I actually thought about using her as the person to interview, but she is the daughter of an, of mm. an emperor. So I thought you would lose a little of that kind of provincial feel, but obviously you'd want to have a series of side interviews with her about questions of, did she have a choice in this? Right. What was her feelings on this? How does this function? Right. How do these high prestige marriages, which we kind of just pass off, I think very often in the sources, but what is the, what's her perspective? What's the perspective from a woman who's being essentially forcibly married off um, to an extent? What's her choice in the process? Um, and so within this phase, there's also a question of, right, uh, I think the key question here for me is, you know, he has a son, Leo II, who uh, is technically the senior emperor to him at the time, but dies uh, very young. Um, and all of a sudden he has a conundrum, right? What, what does he do? And for the first time, essentially, at least in the Eastern Roman Empire, for a while, you have uh, a military commander who essentially becomes emperor himself, right? Takes formal reins of power again. There'd been a back and forth struggle for, you know, 70, 80 years here. And this is the pattern that will essentially follow for centuries to come, right? That you have someone who's actually wielding military, political, and religious power all in one figure again. And this will continue through Anastasius, Justinian, et cetera, et cetera. So how does that transition work, right? I mean, I'd be very curious, is this a natural thing? How does this process work? We know he has a series of revolts against him, which is probably because of this process to an extent. Um, so how does this uh, change over time? And then the third thing is obviously during his own reign, um, in particular, right, you'd ask a series of questions. What does he think about the provinces now that he's the emperor, right? How does he reflect upon these changes? How has this shaped and changed his mind? And finally, obviously, you'd want to ask him, uh, he's the emperor in the empire when the West is, quote unquote, officially gone in 476, right? So, you know, I think most of us right. academic historians would say that 476 is kind of like a nothing burger date at this point. But what did he think about it? And what did he think about those changes over time? Um, you know, and how did he envision what it meant to be Roman uh, as this progressed over the course of his life? So that's kind of what I'd want to do, right? Interview this person who went from this kind of uh, humble origins, for lack of a better term, although I doubt he's actually very humble. Um, although, uh, you know, where he ends up, right? What did he think of his world at the beginning, during the process, and at the end? And again, you could ask him a million other economic, social, religious questions are huge here, I think, right? What's his daily life like? How does that change over time? You know, so again, I would just steal Alexander's questions, but make it a a longitudinal study. So you have a kind of a deep archive of what this person's experience was. Right. Um, so Merle, let me jump in here and I'll, I'll give Paramo some time to think of some questions about what, you know, how, how that choice is situated and, and how she sees, you know, Byzantium in this culture. Uh, some interesting things about Zeno. He was the only emperor to be appointed by his son, <laughs> infant son, <laughs> in fact, because when Leo I had tried to appoint Zeno as his successor. It was shouted down like there was too much opposition and, you know, nobody wanted him. Uh, and then Leo dies and, and Zeno is appointed by his child son as because they needed a, you know, an adult at the helm, as it were. And of course, Zeno, there's all this bad press about him in the sources. Um, yeah, no, like including that he was physically ugly, he smelled, he was epileptic, he was buried alive, like all of this stuff that's, that's pretty nasty. I mean, just looking at him would give you a sense of how these sources are <laughs> distorted or, or not, right? Um, but I was wondering if you had um, 
if you chose him also in part because of the sort of ethnic angle, because he's an Isaurian and Isaurians are considered, yeah, you know, they're kind of looked down on by other Romans at this time. And there's clearly a lot of ethnic prejudice against them. Like we have riots against Isaurians in the capital that they're found in the streets, they're beaten up and, you know, things like that. And yet he's an Isaurian and he has to manage this whole mess. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's definitely one of the reasons, right? This is why I'd want to figure out at different points in his life, what does that identity mean to him, right? Is this something that, you know, a whole bunch of people in the area really agree on and that this is something that's super important to them for whatever reason? So you could have a series of interviews of what that really means to them. And then how does it mean that he's assimilating, acculturating to a capital, right? I mean, changing his name is obviously right. the kind of key way in which he does this. But that's exactly right, right? I mean, I think at this point, we're less comfortable, at least in scholarship, with seeing them as like an ethnic block and that there's a Germanic ethnic block and that they're right. struggling back and forth. I think that's not the case. But I do think there's something to be said that in this time period, and it's to an extent mostly a fifth century phenomenon, that these kind of big identity blocks do feature more prominently in the sources than they do, I think, in, in many other periods. Yeah, and he could reveal whether the Isaurian language still survived. Like, we don't even know. Yeah, I mean, it's based on uh, having done some research a number of years ago on this, you know, mostly names of people at this point, yeah. which is always, you know, problematic. I mean, I always think of this of my own name always comes up because, you know, my first name is not very common. And then my last name, my parents actually alternated last names with children. And so that always made it so that I had a very dubious way of looking at names in general, I will say. That's a very uh, Paleologan, even Komnenian uh, practice. Um, but, so what's up with your first name? What what does it? So my parents picked, I have two siblings, they picked uh, androgynous names so that they could be, whether it was a boy or a girl, it didn't matter. And that, that was just the name we were going to get. Um, so that's how they were chosen. Oh, Merle doesn't no, I mean, there's famous uh, female Merles in history and there's, you know, Merle Haggard being the obvious one, but Merle O'Bron's a famous actor yes. or actress, excuse me. Um, She's the one I thought of first, Merle O'Bron. <laughs> yeah, so again, that's my own personal, like, I'll just put, put my my views out there that I've always had difficulty assuming that names were like strong ethnic markers, I think, because my own personal uh, bias right. in that regard. But I do think that, you know, when it comes to Isaurian names, that, that seems to be the main basis of what their ethnic identity is. I think probably, you know, they're no different than, say, uh, Baltic, not Baltic, excuse me, Balkan uh, soldiers uh, in the early 6th yeah. century, right? Obviously, Justin being the most famous, Justinian himself being uh, a Balkan soldier or dating back to, say, the 3rd century emperors as well. Yeah. Paroma? Uh, I found this really fascinating, especially this idea of the long durée. I like the way you've cheated, sort of. <laughs> I don't think it's cheating, but I think it, uh, that's a really interesting way of doing it. And there's also, I don't know if you know, this famous documentary where, you know, by Michael Apted, where every seven years he just met with this group, very uh, sort of different socioeconomic, you know, people in Britain from the age of seven all the way to 63 and mm -hmm. see uh, uh, not just changes, I would say, in some cases, maybe not so much change, or in some cases, how just being born in a certain way reinforces your future. So I'm, I, I'm thinking that would also be a perspective, possibly, that you get, uh, you know, if, if you were to sit down with Zeno every five years and speak to him, and, you know, uh, um, and I, I have been interested 
to know what you think about his smelly side <laughs> if there was one but what really uh what i found really interesting was also how you brought out this thing of you know this man from the provinces and his orion coming and uh just becoming emperor uh sort of sanctioned by his infant son or whatever but he is the emperor and how just being in that position might make him reflect on the provinces now and i find that a really uh interesting way to think um uh, about this but also how his own relationship to this idea of of being an emperor might have changed over time because it's not just you know now i'm in the center and those are the provinces but also i i wonder i mean if we could get an in into the minds of these emperors uh how did they their conception of this uh, whatever i don't know monarchy whatever being of being an emperor change did was there a, cons a really substantive uh, to use one of antony's words you know from earlier was there a substantive conceptual change in how they envisioned what this state is to be and their own position in relation to the state and i think that might be something also that comes out in your uh, interactions with zeno i'm talking like you have actually met him like you are going to meet him <laughs> no i i think you've perfectly hit on two things that i always think about from our own sources which to say you know late antique middle byzantine actually all byzantine for the most part until you get to a late period you know we have essentially literary sources that we have to unpack we have to do a lot of careful work with and what i always wish we had was more you know ways in which we could know that we could chop that information a little finer right rather than having essentially we can arrive at conclusions over when a certain part of someone's work was written and i think there's really great work done on that but to be able to unpack that a little further that modern historians are able to do but then also use the toolkit that we have that i think is far more developed because of these reasons that we have to work that way um and then the second point i think is is exactly spot on i mean i'm curious about you know chopping up ideas of rulership more fine-grained and to understand how they change over time which i think is something is often taken for granted even though you know living as someone i do in the 2021st century america what the us president and his powers are have changed radically over the last 50 years right i mean war powers act etc cetera, etc cetera, really make that office very very different than it was you know 50 60 years ago mm -hmm. Yeah, especially in the case of Zeno, who had to face, as you put it, the the end or the liquidation of the Western Empire during his reign. And we don't have very many or good sources about that event or how he dealt with it. But from what we do have, it appears that he was caught a bit off guard and didn't exactly know how to handle the situation um, when, you know, Odoacre, this sort of Germanic warlord in Italy, basically decides, yeah, we're not going to have an emperor anymore in Italy, and we're just going to send the insignia to Constantinople and say, here, you, you keep this now. And Zeno doesn't exactly know what to do. And he he basically doesn't answer to Odoacre as to whether he would allow him to continue to rule Italy as a with the title of patrician, hmm. just kind of nominally under Constantinople. So this is the first moment when Constantinople has to imagine itself as the sole remaining center of Roman imperial power. 
and Zeno just doesn't really, he decides to pass. <laughs> Which I, I find really interesting, sorry for interrupting, but right there, it's almost like you, you have to learn on the job in some of these. Right. Right. It's really sounds like that with Odoaka suddenly saying, OK, yeah, uh, I mean, and, and in, in one way, it sounds profoundly empowering that, OK, now we are the last remaining. But at the same time, it's it's also somewhat disempowering. So it's uh, it, it's almost like you're learning as you're doing the job. Yeah, he didn't have a happy reign, too. Um, there were so many coups and plots and rebellions against him. One of them actually drove him from Constantinople back to his homeland for like a year and a half. And they were always plotting against him. And I think one of the main reasons he survived is because the alternatives were always worse. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's true. But I also wonder if part of that process is because of the changing nature of what the emperor is or isn't supposed to be and what he does to the office itself, right? I mean, this would be something I think someone should explore in more detail, right? But you go from a set in which the emperor is kind of a religious, you know, figurehead, to use a bad term, but we'll use it for now, to an office in which, you know, it really controls military power again, mm. and, and economic power. And, and that's a real change to the function of the office. So, you know, is that profoundly destabilizing to someone's rule? Probably. Right. I mean, you're used to doing something, you're used to replacing essentially the person who's running the military at the right hand or left hand of the of the reigning emperor. And now you have to go against the emperor himself. And that's kind of a, a different way in which you think about these things. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because I'm actually I got distracted by a side project now on working out the the history of the field armies of this period. No, no, because I think we've got it all wrong. I really do. Uh, I don't want to get into the technical details, but it's quite likely that the East Roman state at this point has the most and the biggest armies than, it, than it's ever had. And which might even explain why there's so much warfare going on internally at this at this time. In addition to which, he had to deal with all these Goths, right? All these Gothic armies of two people named Theodoric. Um you know, one of whom fell on a spear. So that took care of that. And he just sends the other ones like, hey, wouldn't you much rather be in Italy, <laughs> you know, rather than in the Western Balkans? And Theodoric says, why, yes, I would. And he's like, well, go with my blessing. <laughs> and so, yeah, Zeno just basically, he had this knack for, for, for how should I put this, for getting his problems to solve themselves, usually by having one counter the other. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's also interesting. As you said, there's a, a million and a half revolts against him, yet the guy somehow manages to make it through them all, even when it looks terrible. Yeah. And he clearly has a knack for power politics, right? I mean, yeah. I don't think he probably agreed with the most people, right? He's not this consensus builder, uh, most likely, but he managed to survive for decades, essentially, at the pinnacle of power, which is, you know, pretty difficult. Um, and dies, yeah. you know, peacefully, I guess. He doesn't die in, in battle. He doesn't get poisoned or anything. So. Yeah, you yeah, know, that's right. Um, and, uh, you know, Procopius says about him that, uh, you know, in Zeno, the Romans had someone who knew how to get things done. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a whole other religious policy angle that would also be fascinating Ooh, to follow yes. up, right? But, you know, I left that aside just because I, you know, <laughs> figured that would be a whole other series of issues. But I think, you know, his religious policy is also something to be worth trying to figure out and work out from him. You know, what does he believe versus, you know, what's he doing in these types of questions? Yeah, uh, my my uh, opinion is that it was much more successful than than we give it credit for. But uh, anyway, all right. Any more? Th- any final thoughts before I move move on to Proma? I guess I'll ask. I'll throw out a question for both of you. I'd I'd be interested to know about this. So how 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 did he know how to do his job, Zeno? <laughs> I mean, coming from the pro, how how did he? I, I, because I'm hearing this, you know, about how he's he got one problem to take care of the next, but mm. yeah, he survived for so long and in a time of really some big, it seems changes and some substantive changes. So how do you think, what is the toolkit you need to become a successful? Emperor <laughs> my question, basically, especially for someone just coming, you know, and yeah. someone who is coming from a group that is looked down on. Um, yeah, I think that's actually a wonderful question and actually something that, you know, I don't know how much time has been spent on, which is to say, how do these people get mentored, right? Someone's got to teach them the ropes, right? You you can piss off these people, you can kill those people, but really don't make those people angry kind of deal. And I think, you know, someone like Basel the first, right? I think there's yeah. true or apocryphal stories. We can discuss that at another time, but you know, we get a sense of how that would function, but there's a whole host of people across the the fifth century West who do these kind of jobs and rise to power, but how they really learn the ropes is very unclear, right? I mean, my, my other favorite ruler of the fifth century is uh, Gundabad, who's the ruler of what we now call Burgundy. Um, It's not Burgundy, but that's neither here nor there. But, you know, he somehow learns the ropes from his uncle. Right. And so how do these mentorships work? Part of the problem is we don't know the earlier life of these people, right? They just show up and they're suddenly, you know, the commander of some large army. But I think that would be worth exploring. Maybe this is part of your project that you're getting sidetracked on, Anthony. You could also Uh, build this in. No, no, no. The project is strictly administrative. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not, not, not personal histories. But um, no, that is a, that's an excellent question. Uh, and, you know, what kind of human resources did these people draw on? Um, and let's not forget Ariadne. I mean, uh, right. this is a palace outsider, right? For everything having to do with palace decorum and, you know, how to get things done in the palace, I think she would have been his his guide. And from what I understand, you know, the marriage sort of worked. Um, it was Ariadne's mother that was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but then, of course, she goes on to marry uh, Anastasius. Yes. And so how does that work? This is why I said I I was on the verge of choosing her. And then I said, oh, but the provincial thing, if I can steal Fotini's point and bring that in, I thought was was very useful. Great. Paroma, shall we move on to you? Sure. Yes. All right. Give us your pitch. Launch launch into it. So the yeah. person I've uh, I've chosen could not be more different, uh, I suppose, in origins <laughs> from the emperors, you know. And it's uh, uh, Paul the Silentiary, Paulus Silentarius. Oh. Uh, for and I will say that the reasons why I chose him. I mean, I had some other people on my list, but uh, 
they might seem to be horribly superficial <laughs> compared to the uh you know the the weight and gravitas that Mer that Alexander and even Fortini have uh, brought to this but um I think we can find maybe some gravitas even in what we deem to be superficial perhaps but uh there are basically three major reasons why I'm I'm I, I really uh, I don't know if I like him, but I would really like to talk to uh, Paul. And the first actually comes from a term that Anthony just threw out, decorum. And he was a this thing called the silentiary or whatever, uh, who was oh, one of this small band of uh, people who are supposed to maintain order, uh, right, in the court and to, to look after decorum. And that's something, again, it's, it's a very fundamental question to me, perhaps, both of you know some scholarship on this. How did they do that? One of the things that comes up is that you, you know they, they maintain silence. How did they go mm. around maintaining silence and order in the Byzantine court uh, and and its environs or in the palace? Um, I mean, um, th this is a court where people at certain positions speak a hell of a lot. I mean, there's all this rhetoric and things. I'm really interested in the role of silence in, in this whole thing and how, how they just maintained order. And of course, as an art historian, you see these images of, uh, which is usually of the emperors always standing still. And, you know, they're supposed to be these great uh, paragons of taxes, but really in the living sort of circumstances. Um, I, I'm really, I, I would just ask him, how did you do it? Was there uh, a protocol that you had to follow that you and your, you know, whatever band of 29 other people or whatever it was? Um, and what, uh, how would you address someone who was higher than you in the system if they were being horribly disruptive or something? Were you allowed to then just step in and say, no, damn it, we need some taxes here. We need some Galini. Now you shut up. I, mean, I just <laughs> want to ask um, how they did it. My hunch is, they probably did have some powers. I mean, the little things I've read here and there, uh, uh, for instance, you know, uh, uh, in Michael Tselos's, uh, uh chronographia, how he writes about how uh, Basil II would go around his armies and the armies would complain and say, why the hell are you annoying us so much? So you could actually do that to an emperor. And he would say, look, I need to do this. I mean, it, it, it seems that there's, there is a level of, um, freedom this is not just an absolute you know thing and of course i've read uh Anthony's work on this which which i which has been formative for me in some ways to think about this office of emperor so I'm, that is that is a relationship when it comes to something as simple as decorum how you maintain it so that's one reason i would really like to talk to him the second reason is um of course the, the thing that all art historians go crazy over his his famous <laughs> on Hagia Sophia, uh, which has been looked at a hell of a lot in many ways, mm. but we still haven't, I think we still haven't plumbed all the many interesting things in it. And I really want to ask him, did you actually see that altar cloth? Did you see it when the light was falling on it? Did you get to go up so close to it to have been able to see that on the hem, there were apparently images of uh, whatever hospitals? That's that's very strange to me. Have you heard of altar cloths with, you know, actually the social uh, sort of organizations of of, us, of of that society depicted on them? It's very strange to me. Um, but I also want to ask him if he if he really liked just thinking about stones 
And if okay. he liked thinking, was it something he liked or did he just felt, I have to do this. This is all part of the, the great, you know, panegyric to Justinian. Um, but another thing that I find really interesting is, is the whole marine, the watery metaphor. Mm. And why he's, he seems, I mean, he, he's, it's not just the flaw, which some of us have gone on a lot about, you know, the flaw is water, it's rivers, it's seas and all that. And, you know, the, the ambo is this isthmus and all that. But even when he's talking of the lamps on top, I mean, he says it's like ships floating. He really wants to bring this in, the, the, mm. the, the, the sea. And I, I'm, I, I mean, this is completely out there, but I wonder if there's, if there's really something about this marine motif that mattered in some ways. Was it something that played on their minds? I don't know. So that's 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 one thing. And also, again, to, to bring it back to silence and voice, did he if he actually recited this? And some people say, I think it was the Whitby's Mary Whitby who said, you know, he it was recited in the Imperial Palace. How much did he have to throw his voice if he had to recite it? I mean, how you know these spaces? I mean, Hagia Sophia is big, and of course now Bisra Pencheva has done all this work on on the acoustics and so on. Mm -hmm. This is a space that needs you to throw your voice. What was his voice like? What if he had a really squeaky, awful voice? Was that possible? That you can have amazing rhetorical structures in your head, but the instrument, what if that's awful? What if he stammered? I don't think he stammered. Well, I don't know. That's just my hunch. I have no idea. But the, the, these are things that I, I wonder about and I would ask him. And the third reason is, uh, it's really funny to me to read all his his epigrams, especially about mm. the breasts of people. And again, I want to ask him, are these actual breasts of women <laughs> that you have, uh, you know, uh, spent time with? <laughs> and he's, he really likes curves. And to me, just the way he talks about the conscious of Hagia Sophia and then the breasts of uh -huh. the women, uh, it's just a visual connection. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if, if this is becoming X-rated or not. You can... <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, I've actually had a separate episode on those epigrams uh, with uh, uh, Stephen Smith. Um, yeah, right. His work on, on, on that stuff. But at, I mean, this is where I find it so fast. I just like to think of him sitting around with Agathius and maybe some of the mm. others tossing out these epigrams. And I just feel uh, just this love in wordplay and being able to talk about whatever the, the spheres the heavenly spheres and the conscious of Hagia Sophia and here you know these women who he really wants to sleep with um it just makes a nice cross current in many ways and I can just see him sitting with someone like Agathias who may have been his whatever relative his son-in-law and having a few drinks and saying okay let's start and let's get into a sort of epigrammatic contest and and I just think that would have been wonderful <laughs> Uh, and he just seems like someone who probably uh, was very snobbish, but who might have been a lot of fun if you came up to his standards. Again, this is total projection. <laughs> so those are the reasons. No, I don't think it's projection. I think you put your finger on a problem. Well, we don't identify it as a problem that much because the different parts of his work and life are studied separately, right? So the the court position and what Silentiari do at the court, his ecrisis for Hagia Sophia, which there's a, there's a whole separate cottage industry, right, devoted to that text and how it relates to Hagia Sophia, and his epigrams, which a lot of which are kind of playful, raunchy, erotic, and all of that. And there's a person somewhere 
at the intersection of all of those things. And it's very difficult to picture what that person is like, like exactly as you said, you would have liked to to see how, like, is he sitting around with Agathias and joking about the dome of a Sophia and oh, that looks like a breast. Yeah, yeah, but you know, you really should write it up in more cosmic terms, you know? And it's like, is that how it plays out? And and you're exactly right that you have a person who's in charge with a, with a core, right? Of maintaining order at the court. And yet he's the person who is making the most noise with, with the performance of this poem. And this has broader implications for literature in general. Like how was it performed? How is it heard? How is it spoken? Right? Like, uh, we, we just don't know. It's like we have the score, but not the, uh, not the actual music. Yeah. 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 So he, precisely because he's someone whom you can imagine having a, uh, you know, colorful nightlife <laughs> while, you know, talking about God in a year, Sophia during the day, he's really fascinating that way. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. I, I I don't know if 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 those epigrams, some of those epigrams, are just mental masturbation. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I have no yeah. idea. It could be, but exactly that that kind of thing that you that you see in the sixth century, and I feel he's someone who has, uh, as you rightly said, that cottage industry has has so many different strands to it, though you know, uh, just apart from the art historical. Uh, emphasis on different media, the different things he's talking about just in that one ekphrasis, just about not even the entirety of Hagia Sophia, actually, just, just you know, parts of it. But there's so much there. It's so rich. Um, and then this whole question of how how much Latin did they know at the time? What literature did he? I mean, he obviously knew, oh, mm. obviously knew Homer and things like that. Um, how he's using them in just his circle of friends, what they might have done. So... Yeah, I was just going to say that I really like the choice because I think Anthony kind of touched upon this a bit, but you actually kind of already have a three-dimensional person, which I think is actually pretty rare. I mean, right aside from Zeno being ugly or smelling bad, he's just kind of this dude doing stuff in politics, right? And a little bit in religion, but that's politics too. And so what you've actually touched upon is someone who actually probably was you know, pretty normal for at least Constantinople, which is he's able to have an administrative function, right? How does he keep that job, right? Through multiple people running the show above him, right? Not pissing off too many people, right? I could imagine if he yelled at the wrong person who then became emperor like 10 years later, they might not forget that perhaps, right? And then you also have someone who's having fun, right? I mean, living a, a normal life, you know, going down to the pub like you know people in the uk can now do again you know and, and having a couple pints with with their friends and so i think that's actually a pretty rare snapshot so it'd be nice to i think i would be curious to ask you you know how would you see all these aspects of his life kind of interacting like would you ask him explicitly about this or would this be kind of something that you would just kind of chat and hope it came out uh, more naturally that's a good question i think I think I, I, I could just ask, have asked him explicitly. And I imagine he might have said, well, why not? I'm, I am this very wealthy and extremely erudite person and I have all these different facets. Uh, and and may, maybe, maybe that is how a wealthy erudite person should be. I don't know. That's how I see him answering. Uh, um, but at the same time, what I'd like to ask both of you um, is whether you see a literary output uh, 
or historic, you know, any kind of textual output as really giving us insights into the into the author. Or can we really separate them out? It could be that he's a completely doer, boring person who's maybe praying all the time, <laughs> just you know, uh, constantly saying paraton on don or something like that. I mean, I'm wondering how we make that uh, because I mean, uh, for for instance, James Joyce, right? Who would have thought that he wrote really raunchy letters to his wife? I mean, I wouldn't have thought it. Not that I've read much James Joyce. Well, I, by this point, but, I'm willing to suspect that everybody has written raunchy letters, and I would hope it would be to their wife. <laughs> but I'm I'm disabused of even that. Um, so yeah, in in terms of just sheer revelation about what people say and do, yeah, you know, when others aren't looking, even uh, I think we, I don't know, I I. I ready to believe anybody that anybody has done anything in other words all the options are open he could be any of well i don't imagine that someone who is a particularly sort of small minded pious disposition would write the epigrams that he did um right. yeah but i can also imagine someone having a tremendous wit and being able to write those and just being incredibly dull in person yeah that's that's yeah. that's the thing that's the thing i mean wouldn't that be really disappointing is if you went into this assuming that he had to be you know more interesting and exciting because look we have these great uh <laughs> great works of his that are kind of raunchy and fun and exciting and you meet him and he's just like an extremely boring person i mean <laughs> this is it, not to say that he's boring but he could just be you know very introverted right he might just Absolutely. that's how he expresses himself right i mean Anthony, you and I talked about this in the last time I came on, but you're not on Twitter. But some people who are on Twitter are extremely, you know, talkative on Twitter. But when you actually meet them in person, they're actually very quiet, right? I mean, this is how you express yourself. And so for all we know, it actually might be extremely disappointing to uh, to sit down and talk to Paul. I hope that wouldn't be the case. <laughs> That's absolutely true. I uh, I agree. Yeah. And that would be a revelation in itself, you know, in, in that sense, again, about a person's relationship to words i suppose and how they wield them where they wield them yeah i mean paroma raises i think this is like a fundamental question in the study of ancient and pre-modern well literature in quotation marks but texts that we have right in the in the sense that it is extremely risky to identify the persona that's projected in the text with that of the author which was something that was done sort of habitually, you know, down to the 20th century. And I had a um, teacher in college once who remarked offhand, but it it was for me a, a revolutionary comment. I mean, it completely changed the way I read text, which was that there are only three people from antiquity whose personalities we can even begin to glimpse from their writings. And those are Cicero, the Emperor Julian, and St. Augustine. And that everything else, everybody else that we have is a crafted persona by, by genre, by occasion, by whatever, rhetorical needs of the moment, what call it what you will, from which you cannot infer personality. But those three people, if you read all their works, and I'm, I think he was right, 
there's mm -hmm. a reasonable expectation that you can kind of predict what their personality would be if you met them, mm -hmm. but for no one else, which is, I don't know, it's both, it's both horrifying and I, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. No, those people, they're kind of locked away for us. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's, that's, you know, Augustine, Julian and Cicero. That's Cicero. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think what we often do, at least I know I do to go back to my example of Gundabad, who I you know, <laughs> have positive thoughts for, but he killed his brother. <laughs> right. I mean, so <laughs> what do you do with that? Well, like in person with an ax or, you know, have some people do it. I mean, it, it wasn't uh, the nicest way to be done. I, I don't think it was in person with an ax. So it's unclear, right? The sources are later. All right. But, you know, he had him killed. Right. I mean, so what do you do with, as you say, these figures running? You can't infer feeling or what their actual emotions are. Right. But I think we often you know especially if you start as many of us do reading the works or studying one smaller place you do come to identify for better or worse with your main actors mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a really that's another interesting thing which as historians i would ask you do you find that uh you know when when students are told something like this say you know someone uh, killed had their brother killed so say president or a prime minister now in our time or even 50 years ago, they would take it as somehow being more serious. It's a, it's a serious impediment to their perhaps disliking the, the head of state who did that than when it happened a thousand years ago, right? Uh, I mean, do you find that, that thing? I'm just asking because, uh, you know, it, it brings me to this, somehow I'm jumping ahead, but this whole thing of say trigger warnings, which they really tell modern and contemporary historians to be careful about, say if they're talking about the Holocaust or if they're talking about uh, at the partition of India uh, uh, by the British and things like that when they're showing, you know, um, uh, things like that. But no one has ever told me to give a trigger warning when I show really graphic images of the crucifixion of Christ, of which you have some in the in the Western uh, medieval tradition. Mm. And I've always wondered, shall I? But I've never had to, never had to, or if I show images of the massacre of the innocents, nobody has ever told me. And, and no, no student has ever said, I'm really traumatized by this. And sometimes I wonder, I mean, I don't know whether I should, I, I have no idea. But, and it seems to me, it's a, again, a relationship with how far an event is in some ways. And sure. is that even valid? I mean, can we, uh, which is why I find Merle your comment that you know sh what do I do with the fact that this guy had his brother killed? It's really interesting. Um, well, I mean, so so it's the mask of the innocence. I started laughing, and I'm sorry. I don't, I don't think the event itself is funny, but every time I hear that, I can't um, not recall this incident where the emperor Alexius, Alexius Komnenos, right? So, uh, I, and I think this was in the late 11th century, the 1090s. And he was being harassed by these monks from Mount Athos who wouldn't stop coming to the court uh, to complain about these, uh, you know, um, pastoral populations, Vlachs probably, who were moving yeah. into the lands that Athos owned. And they had women and children. And, you know, the Athenites had this thing about, you know, not allowing women and children yeah. around for, yeah. you know, temptation. 
And they, they kept sending monks to the court to complain about the presence of these women, especially the children, um, or like young yeah, teenagers or whatever. And at some point, Alexis got really, really tired of the persistent, you know, this harassing monks who just wouldn't stop pestering him about this. And he bursts out, what do they think I am? Herod to solve their problems? <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. Right. That's a great. Where, where did you find it? Where can I read it? Um, this is in a collection. It's a dossier of documents and letters that survives. It was put together in the 12th century about authors. I can, I can send you the, 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 the It hasn't been translated or really even studied much. Wow. Uh, but it's like the scandal of the blocks. So answer your question yeah. directly about what I put on the screen or what I don't, I do now actually, you know, I teach a lot of plague pandemic stuff as well. And so if I'm going to put up images of skeletons, which I've cut back on quite a bit, but I do think for some context as necessary, I do say the next slide has images of skeletons. So if that's something that bothers you, please feel free to look away. I often show images if it's in a classroom setting of what a bubo looks like from bubonic plague. Right. That's not the most visually uh, pleasing, pleasing uh, image. So I warn about that, I, things like that. Um, if it's in an academic talk, I'm less likely to, although maybe you could make a case that I should also do it for that as well. Um, well obviously these things are contextual. I mean, we, we basically have to guess what is likely to trigger students based on what traumas they're likely to have had. And a pandemic is, you know, definitely a good idea, right? Um, but like, you know, maybe uh, you, you're a, a Germanic warlord burying his ax in the skull of his brother is not, I mean, how how many of us have that experience in our family, <laughs> right? I And yeah, so you mentioned the cross, which, uh, or the images of the crucifixion, rather, which is interesting because I can imagine all kinds of ways in which that might trigger people, ranging from their religious upbringings to the fact that this is a religious image. And and I can imagine, like, in the Middle Ages, people, um, how should I put this, investing emotionally so much in the crucifixion that it does trigger them. Right. I find that less likely today but you, who knows right yeah yeah exactly and it's i mean when you think about it, i'm i'm pretty immune to it i don't but it's a really dreadful way to to die to yeah i mean that's what mel gibson was trying uh, to do in the passion right i mean <laughs> i mean did that cause people to be triggered do do we have christians who are traumatized having seen that movie and keep thinking about that like i don't know I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. But I guess again, it's 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 that uh, our own relationship to the past and what is more past than uh, in 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 the general pastness of the past, what is more and less. Yeah. Um, so. All right. Um, shall we move on to my pitch? Uh, yes. <clears throat> I, yeah. I think you know we we don't have that much time, so I'll try to make this brief. Um, and I'm going to pick up from, well, actually, a, a couple of things that you said. So first, you know, Paroma and um, the, how you drew attention to the problem of 
um, trying to understand what our medieval subjects were like behind the texts that we have. Mm -hmm. And the problem with many of those texts is that they, the, the surviving body of material that we have is that it's all kind of normative in a way. That is, it's all trying to reinforce certain kinds of norms, whether in the religious sphere, the political or whatever, regardless of what it's describing, you know, there's, you know, good is good and bad is bad. And you might disagree about which emperor was good or which bishop was right or which theologian was right, whatever. But the texts are always inscribed within this framework. Um, and there are very, very few that are not. And I find it hard to believe that society was so locked into these normative frameworks. I think they're a function of our texts, right? Mm -hmm. And oh, right for frameworks for anything, right? Be they gender, be they theological confession, be they whatever. And so I thought, how can I find a person who deviates as much as possible from that framework and who would be able, who would be the best informant about that side of Byzantine life that we don't have access to. And that guy is the biggest con artist in Byzantine history. And his name is Pavlos Tagaris, Paul Tagaris. He's a 14th century, well, any word that I would use to describing would be problematic because he was, like I said, a con artist. Uh, brief, how do, it's, it's hard to summarize his career, uh, but basically he, he had an ecclesiastical career where he moved from place to place, pretending to be the bishop of this or the bishop of that, being accepted locally as that and parlaying that into another position. All right. And so he moved from Asia Minor to uh, Jerusalem, then Antioch. Uh, then he, he and he kept being found out in his scams and cons. And so he would move on. Um, he was posing as the patriarch of Jerusalem for a while. Um, and, and by the way, People around him accepted that, like he could perform that role and he performed like ordinations, he arbitrations, he got involved in royal affairs in Persia and Georgia and the Caucasus and all that, got a lot of money. He started selling fake relics and icons at various points and then he'd be found out. And so at some point he went to Rome, at, <laughs> he managed to convince the bishop, bishop of Rome, the Pope to appoint him the Latin patriarch of Constantinople. So he converts to Catholicism, ostensibly. And the Pope, like, now this is a titular position because, you know, the, 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 Byzantine, the, the Roman Orthodox are in charge of Constantinople, not the Latins anymore. Um, but the Pope is appointing a titular patriarch of Constantinople, who's a Latin, and, and this guy is it for a while. So he goes to Eubea, where he holds this position, more cons, scams, whatever. Meanwhile, the victims of his previous cons are following him. They end up in Rome. They tell the Pope, the Pope's like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Anyway, he moves around some more. Actually, at one point, he even goes to Cyprus, and he crowns the Lusignan king of Cyprus for a fee, right? <laughs> Anyway, so they're, they're coming after him and he goes 
to um, eventually to France now because the papacy is now split between Rome and Avignon. And so he goes to the sort of counterpope in, in France. First, he manages to persuade the Count of Savoy that they're distant relatives. <laughs> and the Count sends him on to Avignon with all these recommendations. And he's received in Avignon and, and he's a celebrity figure in France for a while. He goes to Saint-Denis. Uh, he's like received with almost royal honors. And he tells them, he gives a speech in, in, in outside Paris where he's like talking about the saint, Saint Dionysius, uh, who's from Athens. And we have all of these relics. And if you will sort of send, a, send me with an expedition and we'll go bring all of these relics back from, of, of Saint-Denis, your patron saint. And so they set off and he manages to <laughs> lose his French escorts at some point, take the money and leave. Um, anyway, uh, eventually he, his past catches up with him and he's about 70 something by this point, right? So this is his career for about 30 years that we can document. And he eventually he ends up in Constantinople where he's put on trial uh, by the patriarch, the, 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 the real one. And he has this long confession that we have, his confession before the Synod. Now, our information about his life is not just based on that text, because, I mean, when you're dealing with the, the, the Byzantine world's greatest con artist, who knows <laughs> what he's, who knows, his, his confession might be a part of a con, right? And in fact, what's interesting is that the main thing that he confesses to is his conversion to Catholicism. Like that's the biggest sin. Which the rest is all trivial stuff. Now he mentions all the rest, but that's the one that he wants to be absolved for. <laughs> anyway, uh, we also have other texts. Uh, there, there are texts in France that mention him, um, especially how he swindled the, the French monks. Um, and he also sold the head of St. James, this is the brother of Jesus, to the city of Ancona. Uh, and we, we have the deed, the, the actual deed where he, yeah, he signs it. And there, I think there's some witnesses there. It's some made up paleologi who are allegedly in his entourage. Okay. Now you might be thinking this is, this is like a modern movie or something, or like a comedy, not historical novel. Right. Uh, but it's not, uh, these are all actual, you know, documents. We, his confession is a pretty long document in the, you know, Mikosic and Mueller Acta, you know, edition of the 19th century. It's all there. Um, and there are all these other supporting texts. So uh, this is an unusual character uh, for our evidence, but maybe he's not that unusual for the society. And the, the bias in our sources has stripped all of these characters out of our documentary evidence, I, I suspect, right? So like we've all worked in universities. We probably haven't come across someone who has faked their degree and has been teaching for years on the basis of a made up, right? You, you know what I mean? But apparently that's very common. It, like in, in American academia, you think, how is this possible? In medical schools, right? Or people practicing medicine with, anyway. Yeah, that immediately made me think of not faking the degrees, but the what's happened over the last, say, four or five, six months of a number of people claiming certain 
uh, ethnic or race, racial backgrounds that actually people have discovered exactly. that that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it gets to question. So there's so many questions that this guy, I think, if he were given immunity from prosecution, would testify to in a very enlightening way. For example, just a question of uh, personal identity and how you present, like when you claim you are X, how does anybody around you even know that that's true or not? Um, are how many of the people in our source record are not the people they were claiming to be, right? But someone else entirely. There, there are a few cases of this that I have found. There's one in Procopius, for example, uh, someone pre pretending to be a general. He wasn't that person, right? Or think of all of the people who are pretending to be some deposed or blinded emperor who's coming back. And like their followers like, no, this is totally the guy. And then his enemies are like, no, I knew that person. And this is not that person, right? So there's a question of uh, just on a day-to-day -day or face-to-face -face level of how uh, easy it was to trick people about who you yeah. were, how easily you could just take on a totally different persona, yeah. right? But also, I'm, I'm fascinated by the question of um, even in religious life, so this guy could fake icons, he faked relics, he faked being a patriarch, a bishop, yeah, whatever, right? Now, occasionally we have other sources that mention, you know, fabricated relics. Mm. This is a real thing, obviously. Um, but we talk about them from a distance. Mm. I want to know the mentality of people who were faking them. Like, what did they think about the whole religious world of relics. And I don't know any, it's just such a different perspective from the one that our sources corral us into um, that yeah. we don't even have the, the questions to ask about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, cynicism and all of that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think this person would make a very interesting informant. Yeah, I have some questions that I, I started jotting down as you were speaking and they're probably even more basic. Where does he get his clothing that that mimics the office he's supposed to be holding? I mean, or is it given to him? I mean, presumably you you know can't just show up in a rags and say I'm the bishop, right? I mean, that's probably not going to fly. Maybe it does, and if it does fly, how does that fly? It's interesting you should mention that because it is discussed in the in some of the in the in the confession and in some of the other sources. So he he basically engages in a system of identity laundering. So he shows up at a place, and, and this is more, most explicitly described in Rome and Avignon. If, if he can but convince the Pope that he is X person, um, and in Avignon in particular, so he was arrested at some point in Rome and kept uh, in prison because of the fraud. And when he's let out, so he poses as someone, as a confessor as someone who has suffered for allegedly supporting the real Pope in Avignon and the real, and the Pope in Avignon is like, Oh, you're my supporter, whatever. And gives him the clothes with mm. which to present himself at the next, uh, it's next marks. <laughs> so yeah, he's constantly laundering his identity into new clothing. Okay. So then, then my next question is why does he need the money? Like what, what is he trying to do, right? You, you described how he ran off with the money, yeah. right? I mean, is this all furthering just another series of cons or is it 
just a deep seated, like, this is fun, right? I mean, we all have fun doing various things, playing soccer, playing board games or whatever. Is this just like a fun game for him? I have no idea. That's, that's an awesome question. Like, is he like saving up for a retirement on, I don't know, Mexico or something? I don't know. His, no, his motivation in doing all of this is, is very opaque. I guess the third thing, and then I'll, I said, I have many other questions, but the third thing, which I think you brought up, but is actually an interesting question, which, you know, I don't know if scholarship has been done on this. I presume it has, but I could be wrong, which is how do you identify yourself when there's no state apparatus to do that for you? Right. I mean, you know, if I get pulled over by a cop, right, they ask me for my license and registration. Right. Mm -hmm. But if something like that obviously doesn't exist, or maybe it does at a local level, once you get past your small local network and you're able to travel more, right. I mean, presumably you can carry papers that say who you are, but presumably those could also be forged to some extent. So how does that work? You know, and I assume in this case, right, it's 14th century, there's more connections around the Mediterranean world. So more people can travel and thus it's harder to actually figure out who people are versus you might imagine, say, in a 7th century world, it might be easier, right, if networks are more local. You're right about the connections, but he actually exploits those connections. In other words, precisely because the Mediterranean and you know, Europe and the Near East and Byzantium are also interconnected, he can sometimes find the link to say, to, like he says to the Count of Savoy, I'm your distant cousin. Why? Because Tagaris's stepmother was a cousin of someone related to the imperial family of the Paleologi. And his first Khan was going around with the name Pablos Paleologos, taken from his stepmother. Now, maybe this is a Khan, maybe not, because we know that the, the Komneni and the Paleologi would choose their last names. Like you could pick the last name that you wanted from all of those of your ancestors. And so you would have brothers named, you know, Kosnadinos Komninos, and the other brother would be Ioannis Palologos. So what you're saying is when I tell my story about my name, I should yes. just say my parents had that in mind, although I'm not sure they've ever studied any Byzantine history, but that's... You know. um, well, it's, it's, a, it's a strategy. I mean, you can look at it as honoring different ancestors in, in that way, or as giving you options uh, in this sort of fluid game of aristocratic politics to identi identify with, you know, whomever. So he, when he goes to Italy, he says, hey, I'm your distant cousin on your mother's side twice. When, you know, um, and the count is dubious about that connection. He's like, well, I don't know about that. But you seem like a very, you know, holy man who suffered because of the troop, because the Count of Savoy was supporting Avignon and so forth. Um, but you're right about the state apparatus. So people are not carrying identity cards. There are forms of documentation that you can have with you, but there's no guarantee that the documentation that you're carrying refers to, you know, you, the physical person carrying the documentation. Uh, rarely we have like some wanted notices that describe physical features, but good luck trying to match those with, with anyway. Um, so the closest that I've gotten to answering that question are actually some legal texts. Mm -hmm. And these are range from the third to the sixth century. 
Um, and to make a long story short, basically the authorities were empowered to arrest people certain times and in order to expel them from cities, specifically Alexandria and Constantinople. Uh, so the Alexandrian authorities were authorized to expel native Egyptians who weren't Alexandrian citizens. And Justinian wanted to you know, reduce the number of people who were crowding Constantinople, this before the plague. And so he, he empowered these officials to arrest Syrians and Egyptians specifically. And those officials are called, wait for it, Egyptian catchers and Syrian <laughs> catchers. <laughs> yes. And yes. And so they would go up, presumably just ethnic profiling the whole way. And like, you look like an Egyptian to me. You have to go back to Egypt unless you have legal business in Constantinople. Wow. And, the, and the law says that it, it's the burden is on them to prove that they're not Egyptian. Yeah, I would imagine you would have to have that in there, right? Because yeah. otherwise, yeah, yeah, yeah. not that I'm saying that's right. I'm just saying that's, that's how you would think yeah. it has to be done. Yeah, no. it's, I mean, this is a fascinating character. Absolutely. And I guess, I mean, I, I just, I also have like, I, I'm sure I will have many more questions other than the ones I do already. But I think one that immediately strikes me is this actually is the person from whom we can learn about how he wielded rhetoric because he's doing it to persuade even i mean he can find exactly those points that the yes. other side wants to believe like the countess of savoy who doesn't quite buy the connection yep. with the family link whatever the cousin but who wants to believe and he can pinpoint exactly that's the way he he's such a successful he can be such a successful con man and uh, i think exactly. that would be fascinating to see this is a man who's the majority of his life seems to be case of persuading successful persuasion exactly and uh, it, it's uh, yeah he's fascinating he's... yeah the, there's one identity i just realized now that's actually very easy to prove and that's confessional uh, so when he wants to persuade the pope that he's catholic or the patriarch of constantinople that he's reverted to orthodoxy it's it's easy to do right because that's what creed you recite that's also interesting. It means he he's clearly worked out which categories are easier yeah, yeah. to work with. It shows. I mean, this this man is is someone whose mind. I mean, I'd really like to look into just to see how he's categorized, how he categorizes others depending on their, it in a way maybe the most salient identity that any of us carries, which is what we believe in, what we yeah. want to believe in. What you want? Yeah, exactly. What. He could instruct us want. about what all of these people want to believe because he was an expert at exploiting them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. He'd have been a great secret agent uh, in many ways. Maybe he was. Like, we don't know. There might be a, there might be a con behind the con. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, we're almost out of time. I don't want this to go on, uh, you know, the episode to be too long. Uh, any final thoughts? Uh, this was such a pleasure for me. I had a lot of fun. Sorry. I have fun with these. Yeah, I would say it certainly made me ask different questions and to think differently than I normally would with sources. That's one of the funnest uh, experiences about this because we're so limited by the sources that we have and the questions that we must pose them to them and the ones that we can't ask. So. Yeah, I just like asking the questions that we can't ask uh, just for the fun of it, to see what the answers might look like. Yeah. All right. Thank you both. And I hope I'll be seeing you soon enough in the next suitable occasion.
Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me <laughs> to this. It was great fun. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, take care. Bye-bye.